0: Good afternoon, great to be together, good afternoon. Uh, listen, just uh, as we get started, how many of you were at the Father Heart Conference over this weekend, raise your hand? We had an absolute blast, didn't we? How many of you uh, who stayed in last night to watch the rugby? Uh, it might be too early to joke, but I'm thinking that God might have wanted you to be here instead, I don't know. <laughs> It's painful, isn't it? Well, you know, I, I, right the way through my life, I've been a big sportsman, but always slightly more football than rugby, all right? Any, anyone either of the football fans in the house? Not yeah, yeah, yeah. so many, and you know, I was quite depressed in the first meeting as well. I kind of feel like we need to, you know, shake everyone up a little bit. It's a great sport, much though everyone uh, doesn't seem to be a fan like me, but... You know, I was uh, right from an early age, I was really into my sport. And uh, uh, this is a picture of one of the football teams that I played for. I was so obsessed I was, I'm afraid, that uh, even when I was given a new football for uh, my birthday, I would, before I took it outside, I would tuck it under my quill and sleep with it for a little while, which uh, I'm sure you'll find super sweet. But um, I know you're all wondering which one is me. Well, let's flick on to the next slide. There, right there. So, I am. So I don't know whether that's because, uh, you know, you're surprised by the fact that I played football or by the fact that I had hair once. I know, I know. Well, um, obviously most people uh, make up some excuse about why they didn't make it as a professional at some point. You know, often referring to that dodgy knee and that dodgy tackle. Well, I'm not going to do that, because uh, actually the reality for me is that it was actually an eye injury that uh, stopped me from <laughs> going, going really well. And uh, no, this is, this is actually a true story. I used to play a lot of badminton as well. My doubles partner smacked me round the head with a racket once when we were playing together. And uh, I was out cold and uh, taken into hospital. I was in for hospital about about a week. And um, such was the trauma to my eye at the time, this left eye, that um, the doctor said to me, look, Steve, you're going to have to have a whole year without doing any sport. And whatever you do, don't play football. Because if you jump and if you head the ball, there is a chance that your eye may detach from the rest of your head. So I'm like, guessing I'm not going to be playing football then. Um, but I, I, was a, I was a big, big sportsman. And uh, I, I particularly, this was my favorite player right here. Who's this? Stuart Pearce. Pierce. I'm, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan. And uh, I, don't boo me. And uh, I remember the days of being at the city ground chanting psycho, you know. With the, and this guy was an absolute tank, all right? This guy had thighs about the same, same size as my waist. And, uh, you know, if he was tackling something, he'd be like a train. And he had a, a left foot like a rocket and uh, an incredible player. But, you know, for many years, uh, in the playground, I would play and I would be Stuart Pierce. You know, I would be the, you know, the one shouting at him. But the reality was that I, I was an awful long way away from having his same ability and his fitness and his leadership. And it actually felt somewhat unattainable. And I wonder, as Christians, if there are times when we also feel a little bit like that when it comes to following the model of Christ. Because, you know, when you became a Christian, it wasn't just that you accepted an invitation to go to heaven when you die. But actually, they were your sign-up papers to live a life following and maturing and deciding to be like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus is tough. To live life on the front line, which is what we feel like God's calling us to right now, is to be like Jesus, to pursue and to connect with and to say, actually, that he's my model. He's the one that I want to copy. And uh, I've been captivated just recently by one particular characteristic of Jesus. And that is his compassion for people. And that's what we're going to be exploring today. If you have your Bibles, you're really welcome to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it's going to appear on the screen behind us. But let's just have a little look at three short verses together. And then we're going to unpack a little bit about what it means for us to be uh, following Christ's example and his compassion. Uh, Matthew chapter 9 Verse 35 says this Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. If you've got a pen or a highlighter, you might even want to highlight that. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, if this had been me that it was describing, I think it might have probably looked a little bit different. It might have gone something along the lines of, uh, Steve went through all the towns and villages, keeping busy and doing the work he was supposed to, But as soon as he saw the crowds, he realized that he was absolutely knackered. All he really wanted to do was to get some headspace, find a Nando's, and check on the latest sport headlines. But this passage shows us two things. It shows us first something of Christ's characteristics when he sees people and his compassion for them. And secondly, it says actually that as followers of him, we ought to reflect and model and love people the same way that Christ did. This should be a provocation to us. And you know, we actually read this time and time again if we look through the Gospels and at Jesus' life. You know, where he is exhausted, where he is kind of ministered out, you would seem, actually his response is unwaveringly to show amazing compassion to the vulnerable, to the lost, to the sick to the needy. There's a really provoking quote that I found by a guy called Alexander McLaren. He said this, he said, you tell me the depth of a Christian's compassion, and I will tell you the measure of his youthfulness. These two things, they're connected, and as a society, I think it's true that there is something of a compassion deficit to those people who are most in need, or indeed each other." And sometimes it's quite frightening. I remember, um, it's an extreme example, I know, but I remember sort of looking at various different social media channels in and around what was happening in, in Calais at the same time as some of the refugees were starting to build up on the border there. And um, one of these social media posts in the midst of an awful lot of abuse said this, it called on the government to invite all refugees into the channel tunnel and then flood the thing. You know, even as Christians just now, we need to remember that when we see the statistics and we see the pictures on our screens and we see the sorts of things which we read about in some of these posts, we need to remember that these are lives. These are individuals that God knows, created, is aware of their names, that they are children and mothers and fathers, somebody's husband. Somebody's wife, but you know, as I've been thinking about this, I've been realising that God's been exposing something in my own heart and lack of compassion in my own heart. I was uh, just last month had to go to Bedford Hospital, and uh, my grandmother, who lives in a, uh, a home here in Bedford, uh, had, c- had fallen over, collapsed. She was uh, in hospital, and she was asleep, uh, kind of on the in the kind of A and E place. And uh, I got in, but my grandmother actually has quite severe Alzheimer's. So she no, no longer knows who I am, she no longer knows anyone around her, and, um, but she's become quite a vindictive lady, and so you know, when she's awake, she's spitting, and she's cursing, and she's grabbing, and she's punching, and she's um, quite often very violent and aggressive to the people around her. And uh, to be honest with you, I was kind of just hoping that I'd be able to go in, check that things were okay, and then disappear so they could sort of send her back to her home. And um, it was at one point, even in the midst of this happening, that I went up to the the counter to speak to some of the nurses. And um, I was kind of stood there waiting, working out, hey, when can I leave? And um, there was a a gentleman who was pushed on a trolley behind me. He was quite a big guy. And uh, I was suddenly made aware of his presence because of the smell that came from him and the trolley. And um, it was quite intense. It was somewhat overwhelming. And it made me feel a little bit sick, if I'm honest. And um, I kind of came away, though, thinking, man, I just want to get out of that place. And then just getting absolutely nailed by the fact that actually, this, for a moment, these attitudes that I'm carrying, they're not the same as Jesus. And so I guess I want to stand before you today, realizing that I'm not speaking to you from a place of strength, but actually a place where I honestly say to you, I'm, I'm asking that God would do something in my life, And I'm asking that God would do something in our lives as a community such that we would reflect our Saviour's compassion to people around us. The Cambridge Dictionary speaks of compassion like this. It says it's a strong feeling of sympathy and sadness for the suffering of others and a wish to help them. And in the Greek, if you were to kind of unpack the New Testament language, it's this uh, word, and I really apologize if there's any Greek scholars amongst us, but I'm going to do my best at pronouncing this word. It was splagnidzomehi. Um, um, okay? It wasn't bad, right? Splagnidzomahi, yeah. which means, and I, I, again, I would apologize in advance if anyone pictorially minded, but it actually means like a bowel movement. All right, it's uh, there's this kind of almost deep rooted, right down in the core, from the pit of your stomach, kind of feeling. And sometimes we feel like that, don't we? You know, there's a, a something, some sympathy that kind of comes across you. Maybe a pain, heartache, sorrow, grief, and it's almost like in the depth of your being, there is something that's groaning because you can feel alongside the thing that you're connecting with. And it's this kind of movement, it's this grit and determination that Christ is living with and what we're called to. In Colossians 3, it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, that's you and I, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We need to put it on. There's something about us now recognizing and connecting with that. That's what God's called us to. And I think Jesus' example provokes us with a bit of a question that says, who do we find it difficult to love? Because he, and his example right the way through Scripture, is that he would often connect with those who society thought were hardest to love. So it would be the outcasts and the lepers, the socially rejected, the despised. On the face of it, the people who are unlovely. So who, if I were to provoke you with the same question, who do you find it difficult to love now in this setting i would appreciate it if you didn't point um, but who do you find it difficult to love you know for me i know you know some of you might agree it's the people who drive really slow on some of those a roads right you know it's a 60 mile an hour road why would you only travel 35 or if you're in the cinema And it's that couple who was chatting through the whole movie. If you're going to come and be in a movie, surely you're going to watch the thing, right? Am I right? (laughs) Maybe it's Derby County fans for you. They're particularly, (laughs) they're particular. No, all, all joking aside, being real for a minute. Who are the people? The people you disagree with. People of other religions and faiths. People who aren't like you. I've been wondering what it would look like if we started looking on other people through the lens of Christ's compassion i think we could change the world what about that person that you don't massively like who's uh, you know in a cubicle alongside yours at the office what about that person at the bus stop who you're kind of waiting to go off to school to who you might just be able to say hello and smile and be polite to what about your spouse Seeing these people through the lens of compassion. And you know, compassion like this, like Christ is showing, adds validity to our message, adds validity to the gospel. Let me share a story that I read about a guy called Doug Nichols from 1967. See, he was a missionary working into India, but just after he went, before he was able to earn any of the language, he contracted tuberculosis, and so was sent off to a hospital, committed there for several months, and he found this incredibly lonely, uh, difficult, confusing place, particularly because of the fact he didn't know the language. But he had this kind of desire to share Jesus with people, and the only way he could do that is through these tracks that he had, which were in Farsi. Now... One night, Doug woke up, 2 a.m., he's coughing his guts up, can't control himself, can't catch his breath, but it wakes himself up sufficiently to notice a, a small man who's over the other side of the room, who was struggling to get out of bed. He was so weak that he couldn't stand up, and he began to whimper, and he tried again, but to no avail. Now, In the morning, Doug realized that this man had been trying to get up to use the bathroom, But the stench now in the ward was terrible, and the other patients were incredibly angry with the man who couldn't contain himself. Now the nurse who was there went and cleaned up the mess and then slapped him around the face in disgust. The next night, again, Doug saw the old man trying to get out of bed. But this time, Doug got himself up, and he carried the man to the toilet which was a hole the other side of the room. And then he brought him back to his bed. And as he did that, the old man kissed Doug on the cheek, and he promptly went to sleep. Now, early the next morning, Doug awoke to a steaming cup of tea next to his bedside, which another patient had made for him. The patient motioned that he wanted to have one of those gospel tracts. And the next two days, one after another, patient after patient said, could I have one of those gospel tracks as well? It's compassion that actually demonstrates something of God's kindness. Let me give you an example just from this week. On uh, Thursday, we had a start of our Father Heart Conference. There was a, a lady that I got to chat to, just for a minute, while we were saying hello to people at the start. And I said, oh, hey, it's really nice to meet you. And it was Pauline. And uh, I said, is this your fir- first Father Heart conference? And she's like, yeah, it's my first one. I'm really excited. I said, like, that's great. First one. And she said, well, I've actually only been a Christian for nine months. I was like, brilliant. That's super exciting. I'm so glad that you're, that you're here. Tell me what happened. And she said, look, well, for me, it was just the fact that I started taking my two grandchildren along to a church run toddler and parent group. And it was there that the people showed me such kindness, such love such compassion, that I just couldn't resist. What a beautiful picture. And actually, then she's living for Christ now, and she's loving getting to know God more at our conferences. It's a beautiful thing. I heard it said like this, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And as followers of Christ, we are compelled to give our time, to give our efforts, our generosity, and our love to those who are around us. I actually, I think it goes further than that as well, you know, because... Even when we're doing uh, training to say, right, let's get people out on the streets. How can we connect people well? One of the things that I'll often say to people at that point is, don't go and approach someone until you feel a love and a compassion for them. Don't, just, don't, just don't go and do it. I did that this, um, this summer at an event called New Day. Lots of our young people were there. It's a fantastic thing. Seven odd thousand people. And one of the things that I was involved in there is releasing uh, about 300 of them to do afternoon outreach. And uh, one particular afternoon, we'd uh, taught them how to do something called treasure hunting. So the desire behind treasure hunting is simply to listen to God's voice, to give you clues in order to track down who it is that God wants you to bless that day. And one of the lads who was in my group was a, was a young boy from, um, from a place called Worthing called Joel. Joel. And okay? he, was, he was one of the younger age groups, so he was around about 12, and probably this kind of height in here. And a sweet lad, one of the first times he's done it, and he wrote down a number of clues to go and find. So he wrote down um, uh, the road Bramley Road, he wrote down the, the word wellies, he had a number which was 19, a stomach condition, and then he felt like God told him Jack and Robin. Now... So he got there with his map of clues, and uh, he, he, he kind of went to the, the street map, which is when we first hit the place called Deerham, which is where we're at, and he was like, right, is there, a, is there a Bramley Road? And there was a Bramley Road on the map. We're like, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, Joel. You're hearing from God. This is great. And so we, um, uh, I sent him off in his group. Why don't you go to Bramley Road? See what God wants to do. He went off later, and uh, it turns out when they arrived at Bramley Road, they were walking down the street, found number 19. And then outside the door was this enormous tub of wellies. Like, man, God, is on this. So pluck up the courage and knock on the door. No one answers. So they're like, right, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Okay, we're going to write a note. So they tracked down this bit of paper and wrote on the note, we're Christians, we think that God wants to bless you. We think that you have a stomach condition and your name is Jack Robbins. Posted it through the door. Now, so... It's later on that day, I find out, the next opportunity I have, I get him up in front of the whole two, three hundred people, and uh, we just kind of celebrate, wow, what courage, obviously heard from God, had the bottle, the bravery, the compassion to pop that note through the door. Two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I got an email from the guy who oversaw the whole of the uh, outreach, part of which said, hey, remember that note that was pushed through the door? Turns out it was right. Jack Robbins, Christian neighbor, got in touch to still tell us about his stomach condition. Isn't that insane? If, um, yeah. The first thing I think is that God's so kind, such that actually He didn't just open His door to some, some young people at the door, but actually He connected Him with His Christian neighbor to do it, which I think is brilliant. Second thing is, if you were wondering, uh, Phil and I have been talking about him coming and speaking at our next prophetic forum. So, uh, you know, (laughs) small though it might be. I'm thinking that would be a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) We need to have compassion for people. Um, Jesus has got compassion for the lost, okay? When he saw the crowds, it says, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we have a gospel of compassion. William Bramwell put it like this how is it that the soul being of such value and God so great eternity so near and yet we are so little moved you know um, it's been known my wife and I sit down to watch a slushy film from time to time and I actually I'm a a big fan of uh, Titanic and uh, don't laugh judge me I think it was a great movie, Celine Dion's soundtrack just makes the whole thing come alive, and you know, there's, this, there's these beautiful moments between our two heroes, and oh, really moving. Right? And you know, I, we actually watched it maybe a year ago, and the first thing I did, as often I will, is I, I put a little message out on Twitter, isn't Titanic a brilliant movie? And then suddenly it hit me, this happened. I'm like, man, I've got to delete that thing, because I, I don't want to celebrate that tragedy as a good thing. But, you know, it was just over the summer, a few weeks back, when I heard an incredible story of one of the things that happened on the Titanic. I would love to share it with you. It's a story of an incredible, kind of courageous guy with unshakable faith named John Harper. This is his uh, picture just behind me. So it was April uh, 1912, and the HMS Titanic was traveling across the North Atlantic before they were over 1,500 lives that were lost. And John Harper was aboard, setting sail from Southampton, going over to America. Now, on the evening of April 14th, as passengers were dancing in the ballroom and playing in the um, casinos, on the card tables and so on, John Harper was putting his daughter to bed. He was reading his devotions just the same way as he did every night. And at 1140, the Titanic was struck with an iceberg. This unsinkable ship was doomed. Either in disbelief or unaware at the time, passengers just continued what they were doing until people started to see the distress flares which the crew had started throwing up into the sky. And at that point, people realized the seriousness and chaos began to ensue. And so Harper woke up his daughter, picked her up, wrapped her in a blanket, and then carried her to the deck. He kissed her goodbye, and then handed her to a crewman who put her on lifeboat 11, with Harper knowing that he would never see his daughter again. She would be an orphan at six years of age. And at that point, he started moving around the ship, asking people the question, Is your soul saved? See, as the Titanic began to sink, And as the sounds of terror and mayhem continued, survivors reported seeing him on the upper deck, sitting on his knees, leading people to Jesus and praying with terrified passengers. There was one particular gentleman who said he didn't want to know Jesus, so he took off his life jacket and he gave it to this guy and said, you need to get yourself safe so that you've got another chance to respond to him. Another passenger reflected that he saw Harper calling out on the deck, women and children and unsaved people onto the lifeboats. See, he understood that there is something more important than surviving a terrible disaster. He understood that there were those unprepared to face eternity. And at 2.40, the Titanic disappeared beneath the North Atlantic, leaving a 1,000 people, including John Harper, fighting for their lives in the water. He managed to find a floating piece of shipwreck to hold on to, and he quickly began to swim from person to person in the cold water, urging them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And in that water, John Harper was moving around as best he could, asking that same question, Are you saved? Those who weren't saved, he would cry and quickly, as best as he could, explain the terminology and you know, share with them the gospel. And the reason that we know this happened is because of one particular survivor. You see, John Harper didn't survive that night, but the survivor did and said this. I'm a survivor of the Titanic. I was one of only six people out of the 1,000 517 to be pulled from the icy waters that dreadful night. Like hundreds around me, I found myself struggling in the cold, dark waters of the North Atlantic. The wail of the perishing was ringing in my ears when there floated by me a man who called to me, Is your soul saved? Then I heard him call out to others as he and everyone around me sank beneath the waters. There, alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I cried to Christ to save me. I am John Harper's last convert, what faith, what urgency, what compassion, you know it's it's this kind of compassion that shapes nations, I love what Dom's doing right now, so thrilled by the fact that he's part of a solution that's going to bring joy and life in a difficult situation and recently I've studied a variety of people who, Christians who have shaped the nation. You know, William Booth with the Salvation Army, George Muller and the orphanages, Hudson Taylor and what he did in China. One of the things, the common denominators about all these guys is their compassion. They're gripped by something that says, I want to do something about this for the sake of Christ. And I'm so blessed by the fact that in this church, we have the King's Arms Project, and now so many missional communities that are starting to reach out into broken lives and communities. But I don't think we're done. I believe that there's dreams and visions and a compassion that's going to start gripping some of our lives. That's going to shape what this town looks like. But it's going to need all of us to play a part. You know, this compassion, though, isn't just for people out there that you're connected with. It's sometimes p- people who are much closer to us. I would love to pose us some questions as we bring things slowly to a close now. The first one is this. If you don't naturally have Compassion, we can pray for it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, God, would you, would you change my heart? Shake my heart? Do it in us here. I believe it's a prayer that God's going to answer, that He would love to answer. If we do naturally have a sense of compassion, hey, let's ask for more. Let's ask that He would grow it. We need to recognize that our compassion is directly connected with our urgency and evangelism and our desire to see other people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Is there suffering around you that you can alleviate? Are there sick people or spiritually needy people who we can be a people of compassion toward? Now, I'm gonna just ask the stewards, please, if you could just start distributing some of the communion pots that we have. I know Dave's just coming in now and then they can start, but just hold on to these things real quietly for a minute. But just as they get distributed, we're gonna finish in a few minutes by taking communion together in a little bit of a different way. But you know, it's 1 John 4, 19 that gives us the reason. How can we do this? How can we show compassion to people? It says we love because he first loved us. Yeah. Yeah. It's where it starts. It's where our compassion for people must begin. We can feel a sense of that, a heart, and feel a sense of desire and passion for people when we know, actually, when I was lost, dirty, filthy, far from him, he was the one who saved me. God gave his son. Jesus gave his life. I don't know whether you're in this room right now and you're wondering, does God really love me? How do I know? You can know because of the fact that he died for you. You can know Jesus loves you. Someone who doesn't love you is not going to die on your behalf. Someone once said to me something just recently, asked me to do something, and I have a beautiful two-year-old son. His name is James And I'm so proud to be his dad. And he just fills me with joy. I love hanging out with him. Someone said to me, take your son in your arms, hold him, and then read over John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life to read it and ask yourself the same question. For people who despised him, people who rejected him, God did that. And you know, God doesn't love a future version of you. It doesn't just that he's, you know, I'm going to love him when he starts coming to church five or six weeks on the bounce, right? He does, I'm not going to love him when he's read the whole of the Bible through in a year. He loves you now. He's for you now. The way that we're going to do this, the way that we're going to remember this, this day, is by taking communion. Maybe it will, if you could come back up for us. Now, I know what you're thinking. Right now, you're probably holding our communion pot, and you're thinking, is this how EasyJet would do communion? <laughs> I get that. I get that. It's not how we normally do communion here, I recognize. But, you know, I, I intentionally wanted to do something a little bit different, where we would be able to stop and to pause and reflect, and that's what we're going to do. Now, a couple of little caveats, okay? First of all, I need to apologise because these are not gluten free. All right? So the little bit of bread that's that's in there. Forgive me if, if you were uh, if you need to, something to be gluten free. Um, and I also just wanted to say, practically, if you put this in your pocket right now, don't send me the bill for any white trousers that are stained. <laughs> all right? So it would be really helpful. After we've finished just now, if you would use the bins that we've provided at the back to take that little cup and pop it into the bins. Okay. There might be one other group of people here I just want to make reference to before we do this. And that's people who aren't yet Christians. I believe God knows you. And I believe he brought you here today to be able to hear of a saviour who went to a cross on your behalf. The Bible says in Romans 10:9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want to invite you that if that's you, this can be the first time you take communion, knowing his broken bud, body represented by the bread and his shed blood represented by the juice, and you can remember To put your trust in him, the one who's alive now and sees it all. Now before you open your communion pot just now, what we're going to do is I'm going to read out as we close a passage written hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, a prophetic picture from Isaiah 53 from a version of the Bible called the message. And all I want you to do is sit and listen to reflect on these words. And then, when you are ready, break the top, take the bread, drink the juice to remember. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling. A scrubby plant in parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered. Who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But well, the fact is, it was our pains he carried. Our disfigurements, all the wrong things for us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sin that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared. He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried. And he was led off. and did anyone really know what was happening? He died. Without a thought for his own welfare, beaten, bloody for the sins of my people, they buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, and even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true, still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he gave himself as an offering for sin. So that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and he will be glad he did it. Though, through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones, as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honor, because he looked death in the face and he did not flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest, he took on his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cause for all of us. This day, Father, we remember. We remember all you did. Your broken bloody, your shed blood. We thank you and praise you for your compassion this day. We pray. May we reflect your compassion to those around us. May we love people. Or because of how we see them, but because of the way that you see them. May we demonstrate kindness and grace and urgency and a heart which pursues you all above all things. In Jesus' name.